Please, uh, please be seated. And thank you, Mr. Church. I don't plan on doing that often, but uh, thank you for helping us as we prepare to read uh, the scripture together. So please uh, take your Bible and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. This morning we uh, uh, heard that wonderful uh, passage of scripture, the angel uh, appearing to, uh, to Mary. And uh, this evening we want to uh, consider uh, Joseph uh, and what was said to Joseph at the the coming of the the Savior. So I'm going to read for us from Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through uh, 25. And so you know the first part of Matthew 1. uh, We have 17 uh, verses with lots of of names. Some of those names are familiar to us. uh, Others not so familiar. And then after you come to the end of that uh, genealogy, read these words in Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you that we have already sung together that uh, we're dependent on your Holy Spirit uh, to work among us, uh, to move among us, to break us, to melt us and mold us, uh, that uh, perhaps words familiar to us uh, would uh, come to us in a new way by the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would again be filled with thankfulness and joy for all that we have been given in the person of your Son. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Uh, one of the, uh, I forgot to mention during the prayer, one of my prayer requests was going to be uh, uh, tonight uh, that uh, as we uh, serve the Lord together uh, in ministry, that not only would we grow together uh, spiritually, that I would grow closer to you as pastor and you as congregation to your pastor, but that uh, as I've been here a couple of weeks, I'm, my prayer I realize is also going to be that we're going to grow together physically uh, because uh, I'm used to in California being uh, a lot closer uh, to the sheep, to the people of God. And so you just seem a mile away. And so if you seem a mile away to me, uh, I can only imagine that I seem a mile away to you. And I don't want that to be. And so uh, not only is my prayer that we grow spiritually together, but that uh, maybe in a year's time, who knows, maybe even physically, we might 
grow closer uh, together as well. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place uh, in this way. Bill and uh, Gloria Gaither wrote many years ago, there's something, uh, there's something about that name. And uh, something about that name, Jesus. Uh, Nida Hearn was born in New Zealand in 1931. She was raised a Methodist. Uh, Hearn had been married to a man who became a Jehovah's Witness along with their son and made it very difficult for her to live her Christian faith. And as Nida was nearing her 40th birthday, she began studying the names in the Bible referring to Jesus. Uh, she was 43 years old and uh, she was doing the laundry one day in December of 74. And she placed the list of uh, the names of Jesus uh, there on her windowsill as she was doing the laundry. And uh, as she was thinking about the names of Jesus, a, a tune came to mind and um, all the names of Jesus were in her head. And she began to hum a tune as she worked and she thought, wait a minute, this, this, this might be something. So she went to the piano and plunked out a, plunked out a little melody on the piano that went with these words. And that song was published uh, by Scripture and Song in 1974. She wrote 12 songs. It's the only one that was ever published. Uh, her song was taken to Europe and uh, she died in 2001. And uh, you know her song, it goes like this. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, Blessed Redeemer, uh, Living Word. That was her little song she wrote about the names of Jesus. Now, you know this passage very well, but this passage of Scripture clearly uh, is concerned to communicate at least two things we want to focus on tonight. Two things simply in this passage of Scripture, but they're absolutely <coughs> crucial to our Christian life. First of all is the, simply the absolutely uh, miraculous, supernatural character of the birth of a son to Mary. That's the first thing. The, uh, the absolutely uh, supernatural character of the birth of a son to Mary. And the second thing is the absolutely uh, gracious and merciful purpose of the birth of a son to Mary. And hopefully as we consider these, these two truths, we'll realize that they really point to the fact that being a Christian uh, involves faith, and wonder uh, from the beginning of our Christian faith, the middle of our Christian faith, to the end of our Christian faith. The Christian faith is meant to be characterized by, by faith and wonder, you know, from first to last. And it's that faith and wonder that fuels uh, our worship of the living God. So first of all, uh, the absolutely supernatural, miraculous character of his birth. Now, put yourself, for instance, in, in the shoes, for instance, of an unbeliever who may come to the Bible uh, for the first time. And let's say they come, uh, they come to the New Testament and they open the book of Matthew and they start reading through the book of Matthew. And you know, the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew, of course, is the, the genealogy of, of Jesus. And so let's imagine uh, you're an unbeliever. You read those first 17 verses. You probably have no problem. Uh, with the text, because maybe other than that, you might be a little bit bored as an unbeliever reading that genealogy. But it's just a genealogy telling the uh, the ancestors of of Jesus. It's fairly uncontroversial. Uh, nothing unusual there, perhaps. Uh, as an unbeliever, you'd not see, as we do as Christians, 
that even in the genealogy, God is, you know, fulfilling his promises and history. The unbeliever wouldn't recognize perhaps the Gentiles in the list. Uh, the unbeliever wouldn't perhaps recognize there's a lot of messed up sinners in that list. Uh, the unbeliever wouldn't recognize the amazing and merciful humility of Jesus being born from such a line of messed up sinners. They wouldn't see all that. But at least they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be terribly offended by the first 17 verses. But then comes verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, now in that day, betrothal meant to be legally engaged to be married. Uh, before they came together, that means before there was any sexual union uh, of any kind, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That is, she was found to be pregnant from, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit. That is, this was the work uh, of, of God. J.C. Ryle says about these verses, these are very mysterious subjects. They are depths uh, which we have no line to fathom. We can't get to the bottom of them. They are truths which we have not mind enough to comprehend. Let us not attempt, says Ryle, to explain things which are above our feeble reason. Let us be content to believe with reverence and not speculate about matters which we cannot understand. Enough for us to know that with him who made the world, nothing is uh, impossible. So the unbelief here at verse 18, all of a sudden you are faced with the absolutely supernatural character of the birth of a son to Mary. Now, notice immediately uh, the quandary that Joseph is placed in uh, with what is happening. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being just a man, being a just man, uh, that means a righteous man, a faithful follower of God and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now here, Joseph, of course, is facing a great dilemma. The woman he was pledged to marry is found to be pregnant. And what was he to do? Now, we often forget, of course, what this miracle provoked uh, in the minds and hearts uh, of unbelievers. We perhaps get some glimpse of it when you might recall when Jesus, um, Jesus is confronting a, uh, a group, uh, a Jewish crowd in John chapter eight. And he's talking to them about Abraham and he's talking about uh, how, um, you know, God is his father. And then he starts talking to them about who their father is and they get really upset uh, because this is this is the interaction that takes place in John eight thirty nine. They answered him, that is the crowd answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing, he says to this Jewish crowd, you're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, uh, even, even God. 
Now you got to remember that. So this is Jesus. He's talking to the Jewish crowd there and he's suggesting to them, wait a minute, you don't really come from uh, Abraham. You're not true sons of Abraham. Uh, you're doing the works of, he'll say, uh, your father, the devil. But they respond to him saying, wait a minute, we're not children of sexual immorality. And, uh, and there's a possibility there, of course, that what, the, what this crowd is saying, well, maybe that's what was said of Jesus. Right? Because remember, uh, when Jesus is born to, uh, born, born to Mary, she's found to be pregnant before she is married to Joseph. And so who knows what was said of Jesus as, uh, as he grew up. Right? They are not uh, illegitimate children. Maybe Jesus is. And so there's all these, these questions. And, um, and, and the problem is, of course, that for Joseph, this, uh, this is a crisis for him. Uh, he has to uh, believe he's called upon here to exercise great, great faith. And, of course, think of Mary. Yes, there's great privilege here for her, but imagine uh, the looks and the words of the crowd around her. And here's the point. Joseph would have to face those questions, but he shows himself here. The Bible says compassionate uh, and careful and considerate. And the Lord, of course, graciously sends an angel uh, to reveal the truth to him that he does not need to be afraid uh, he, can, he can trust uh, this word from God that's being revealed to him uh, that what's uh, in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And he, he doesn't need to be afraid uh, to take her as his wife. He can, he can continue to, uh, to be betrothed to her. You don't need to divorce her. You marry her, uh, but you have to trust my word. You have to live by faith. You have to believe. No, Mary has not been unfaithful, Joseph. Uh, and Joseph, of all men, needed to trust the word of the Lord. And of course, the Bible says he does, because we read when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now, here's the thing here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, right at the beginning of the New Testament, you and I and every man, woman and child is confronted. We're confronted right at the beginning of the gospel, with the power and the might and the glory of the God of the impossible. This, the Bible says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Now, you doubt here. Uh, you fall here on Christmas. You rebel here. Uh, you close your ears here. No, that's not possible. Uh, you doubt here, uh, you uh, harden your heart here, you turn up your nose here, you puff out your brain here. I know much better than they did 2,000 years ago. You puff out your brain here and the rest of the New Testament falls. You see that? How, how when you come to celebrate Christmas, what happens in the birth of, of Jesus, you're immediately confronted with the absolutely supernatural, miraculous character of God. That demands faith in believers. Faith from first to last. And if you fall here, the rest of the New Testament falls as well. Now, of course, unbelievers know this. That's why in a letter to John Adams in 1823, Thomas Jefferson wrote this. And the day, he says, was he right? This was almost 200 years ago. And the day, said Thomas Jefferson, will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, that is the birth of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed 
with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But we may hope, said Thomas Jefferson, that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away all this artificial scaffolding. So that was Thomas Jefferson. He said he was hoping 200 years ago that the day would come when the belief in this God, that demands faith, when the belief in, in, in the birth of Jesus in this way, that it would be simply classed as a fable because the dawn of reason and freedom of thought would have come to these United States. Richard Dawkins, famous uh, evolutionist, said this, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. So, uh, you know, when you're talking about the virgin birth, said Richard Dawkins, oh, that's all good. Those are all good stories for unsophisticated people like you, dummies like you. And children. But it's not for, you know, respectable people. And here's a, here's a 20th century so-called American New Testament theologian and, and quote-unquote scholar who said, I would argue that the truth of Easter does not depend on whether there was an empty tomb or whether anything happened to the body of Jesus. I don't see the Christian tradition as exclusively true or the Bible as the unique and infallible revelation of God. It makes no historical sense. To say Jesus was killed for the sins of the world is what he says. I am one of those Christians who does not believe in the virgin birth, nor in the star of Bethlehem, nor in the journeys of the wise men, nor in the shepherds coming to the manger as facts of history. That was Mr. Marcus uh, Borg. In other words, he's saying, I'm not really a Christian at all. But he doesn't want to say that. He just said, I'm one of those Christians who doesn't believe anything. That's revealed in Scripture as happening by the powerful hand of God. Friends, right at the beginning of the Gospel, you and I are confronted to live by faith that nothing is impossible to God. Nothing's impossible uh, to God. That's what we heard this morning. The angel Gabriel saying to Mary, for nothing will be impossible uh, with God. But you'll remember that the disciples later, Jesus says, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter uh, the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, well, how then can anybody be saved? You ever believe that? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with man uh, is possible with God. You know what I wonder? I wonder, is it possible that uh, a huge building like this, with so many pews and so many seats, is it possible that, that maybe the Lord could, could put people in there? who believe in Him and who actually love Him and want to worship Him because they have the freedom to do so. Is that possible? Well, it's not possible with man. But it's certainly possible uh, with, with God. But you know what? The Bible does say for man, we definitely know that one thing is impossible for us. Nothing's impossible to God. But one thing the Bible says is impossible for you. And for me, you know what that is? Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, which is what Matthew 1 and the rest of the Bible calls for, without faith, it is impossible for you to please God. And it's impossible for me to please God. That's what's impossible, to go through my Christian life without having this, this, this faith in the God who confronts me on Christmas Day and every other day with His power and His glory. 
and his might. So that's the first thing here in this passage. The absolutely uh, supernatural, miraculous character of the birth of a son to Mary, which calls for faith from us from beginning of our Christian faith, middle of it to the end of our Christian faith. Faith from first to last. But also we're called to wonder from first to last. The second thing we see here, of course, is the absolutely gracious and merciful purpose of the birth of a son uh, to Mary. The gracious purpose of his birth. birth, birth. Now we see this uh, in the, immediately in the two names uh, that are given uh, to this son. One, a name that Joseph would give to his son, and the other name by which uh, they would call him. So if you have your Bible open, verse 21 says, the angel says, she will bear a son. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't it J.C. Ryle? The name Jesus means Savior. It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It's given to our Lord because, we're told, he saves his people from their sins. This is his special office. He saves them from the guilt of sin by washing them in his own atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion, that is the power of sin, by putting in their hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin when he takes them out of this world to rest with him. And he'll save them from all the consequences of sin when he shall give them a glorious body at the last day. Blessed and holy, says Ryle, are Christ's people. From sorrow, cross, and conflict, they're not saved. But they are saved from sin forevermore. They're cleansed from guilt by Christ's blood. They're made meat for heaven by Christ's Spirit. This is salvation. He who cleaves to sin, said Ryle, uh, is not yet saved. Because you see, He came to save us uh, from our sin. You know, Jesus, of course, said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, the Old Testament name Joshua, means the Lord saves. Now, this is important. So right at the beginning again of the Gospel, we're confronted with the the fact that uh, we're called to have faith in the Word of God and trust Him, even as Joseph was called to trust and believe. Uh, But we're also called here to wonder the fact that uh, that, uh, Jesus, He comes with a very specific uh, calling and purpose, the Bible says, to save His people from their sins. Now, this is very encouraging to us because, first of all, that tells us that he has a people. He comes to save his people from their sins. You read about that in John 10, where the, the Bible says the Father has given the Son sheep and he comes to save them. Now, that's encouraging for us because we know then, and uh, this is Salem, right? We're in Salem County or Gloucester. This is Salem County. So we know. We know that uh, God has His people in this county. And the purpose of Jesus Christ and His coming is to save His people from their He will do that. He'll do it through this church and through your ministry and through your family, through uh, your contacts with people. He'll do it through other faithful churches in this county, Gloucester County, uh, the other counties all around. He will do that, the Bible says, because that is His mission. He will save His people from their sins. He has a people. He's been given a people by the Father. 
Now, the point is that, that, that this is so important for us because sometimes we do become confused about the, uh, the purpose of, of Jesus coming. You know, here the Bible says uh, that uh, he's, the, the gift of, of this son to Mary, he's given because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he comes. And we get confused today in the world and in the church about why he came. Some say that Jesus came to bless me. Uh, this is why he came. He came to bless me with, uh, with physical health so that I would live forever, maybe, on this earth. He came so that I would be uh, medically whole all my life. Uh, he came, some would say, to give me uh, material wealth. That's why he came. He came to bless me, to bless me with money and home and and, and power and everything that this world has to offer. That's why Jesus came, so that I would have all the good things of this life. Some say He came to make me feel better about myself. You know, my problem is I've got low self-esteem. Jesus comes to say, you know what? You are a lot more wonderful than you think. Some people believe that. Some people believe that Jesus, the purpose of His coming was to give us an example simply of how to live a good life, how to be a good moral American. That's what Thomas Jefferson believed. Jesus came so that you would simply know how to live a good moral life in America. Never mind. And so some believe that. Uh, others believe that uh, Jesus came to keep us busy, to entertain us, uh, to provide a helping hand when we need him, which is not very often, it turns out, in our country. Uh, he came to improve society, maybe show us how much we are really worth, encourage us to fulfill all the wonderful plans we have for our own, for our own life. And so we can be very confused uh, about why he came. And the Bible says, no, he came to save his people from their their sins. Now, that's important because that means that the uh, world's number one problem, according to the Bible, uh, is sin. Am I doing something wrong? Uh, help me out here, Paul. This thing here? Oh, you know what? It's not even here. It fell. All right. Well, let me fix that because if I am being disturbed by that, I can only imagine. There we go. Much better. Much better. So we've been thinking simply about how we get confused about why, why he came. And so Matthew 1 tells us, no, our number one problem is sin. Uh, it's not gun control. Our number one problem is sin, not our circumstances. Our number one problem is sin, not our income level. Our number one problem is sin, not a lack of education. And that means simply that our number one need is forgiveness and salvation. Our number one need is a savior, not a life coach. Our number one need is a savior, not a cheerleader. Our number one savior, uh, our number one need is a savior, not a Santa Claus. Our number one need is a savior, not a diet. Our number one need is a savior, not a paycheck. Our number one need is a savior, not a flatterer or a comedian or an entertainer, but a savior from sin. This Jesus, says the Bible, is such a Savior. And isn't it wonderful how the, how the Bible puts it? For He, it's emphatic in the, in the Greek, for He Himself 
He himself will save his people from their sins. And so that's a name that we are to wonder at, that Jesus comes to be our Savior. But friends, that's not the most even perhaps the wonderful name here in this passage, because there's another name. Joseph will give him that name. His name will be Jesus because he will save us from our sin. But then the Bible says this is all to fulfill what was said in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Listen one more time to uh, uh, to J.C. Uh, J.C. Ryle. He put it uh, he put it so well. Listen to what he said. We shall often find as we read the Gospels that our Savior could be weary and hungry and thirsty. He could weep and groan and feel pain like one of ourselves. In all this, we see the man, Christ Jesus. We see the nature he took on him when he was born of the Virgin Mary. But we shall also find in the same Gospels that our Savior knew men's hearts and thoughts. That he had power over devils. That he could work the mightiest of miracles with a word that he was ministered to by angels and that he allowed a disciple to call him my God. And that he said, before Abraham was, I am. And I and my father are one. In all this, said Ra, we see the eternal God. We see him who is over all God blessed forever. Amen, said Ryle. That's a wonderful truth. The Bible tells us here, Jesus is God with us. Well, how is he with us? Well, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful place to go. It tells us he's, he was like us in every way uh, except for sin. He's the one who's made a way for us to the, to the Father that we might approach the, the throne of grace with, with boldness to find uh, grace and mercy in our time of need. But he was, he was like us in every way. That's how he was with us. Philippians 2 tells us, of course, he humbled himself in taking the form uh, of a, a servant. So he was with us. So we can trust him. The Bible says he sympathizes with his people. Uh, I love that story of, of Lazarus. And uh, uh, if, you ever, if you ever doubt the, uh, the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that is, among us and caring for us and like us in every way except for sin. You think of the story of, of Lazarus when Lazarus dies and Jesus comes to Martha and, and Mary. And the wonder of that story, of course, is that, you know, of course, Jesus wept as he comes to Martha and Mary. They, they speak of his death, of Lazarus' death. And the Bible says Jesus, uh, Jesus wept. But the wonderful thing about that is that Jesus wept even though he knew that he was, he was shortly to, uh, to raise Lazarus uh, from the dead to call him out. And yet Jesus still wept. Why would Jesus weep if he knew that he was going to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead anyway? Because as Jesus comes to his friends, Mary and, and Martha, he's, he's with them. He's with them. And he loves them. And he weeps uh, with them. But here the Bible says not only is he with us, but remember the Bible says the coming of Jesus is Emmanuel. It is, it is, um, it is God with us. You see, this is this is good news. Here's the glory and hope and wonder. It is, it is God with us. A mere man cannot save anybody. 
A mere man, even a good man, holy man, perfect man, has no power over death in the grave. No man can forgive our sins uh, against God. You remember that passage in Matthew 9 where uh, you know, Jesus um, tells a man, take, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And, and they say, well, wait a minute, who can forgive sins uh, but God alone? And of course, that's exactly what's happening in Matthew 9. Jesus himself forgiving sins because he is God with us. This is what the disciples need to learn. It's what we need to learn over and over again all the time in the coming of Jesus. It means that God himself is with us in the flesh. And now he is with us, of course, by his by his spirit. And this is part of the wonder, the wonder that is meant to capture our heart and attention, not only at Christmas, but every day that we live with the Lord, God himself has come to reside with his people. And of course, throughout the scripture, it is this great truth uh, of God with us that encourages us and and strengthens us and uh, helps us to uh, press on in our Christian life and to be faithful to the Lord, even when we are even when we are discouraged. You think of Joshua when Moses dies and uh, he's discouraged and the Lord comes to him and says to him in Joshua 1 5, listen, no man shall be able to stand before you. All the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He would say this to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That was the great promise that held up God's people throughout Scripture and holds up God's people today that He is with us. And because we know He is with us, it's also our great goal and desire, of course, to be with Him. And this is what the psalmist would say in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for so flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come? and appear before God. This, friends, was the the great desire of the psalmist, that he would be uh, with God, that he would appear uh, before God, how he longed to be uh, in uh, his uh, his courts. That's why why an empty church uh, is a rebuke to the church in America today. The Bible says that His people long to be with Him. That is, where there is Christians and where, there is a, where, where Christians are gathering to worship the Lord, His people have a desire and a longing to be there. That they might sing His praises. That they might fellowship with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's why all the, all, all the churches that are dark on a Sunday night across our land, that's why all the, all the churches that, for instance, uh, canceled worship services today, because they said, well, who's going to come to worship God on Christmas morning in America? Who would do that? Well, I'll tell you who. Those who love Christ. Those whose heart is for the, the living God. Those who know that what they're actually celebrating at Christmas is the fact that God has come to us in Jesus to save us 
And he has come to be with us. And so our greatest desire is to worship him. And so for us to say, well, we don't want to worship him because we're going to be celebrating his birth makes absolutely no sense. But you see, that's where sometimes our faith that uh, loses its sense of wonder at what it means that Jesus has come, that's, that's, that's where it leads to. And, and perhaps Thomas Jefferson wasn't too far off when, he, when his prayer was that uh, 200 years from 1823 that in America many folks would have forgotten about the, the absolutely supernatural character of the living God who demands faith and wonder. And that maybe a new age of reason, freedom of thought, would somehow lead us somewhere else. Well, it has led us somewhere else in our country, but it hasn't led us, certainly, to see more of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it hasn't led us to peace, and it hasn't led us to joy, uh, and it hasn't led us to satisfaction in the only one who truly satisfies uh, the living God. We are called to have faith and wonder uh, from first to last in our Christian faith. And right at the beginning of the Gospel, God demands of us faith that He is the living God. He is the God of the impossible. He's also the God of wonders who sends His Son to marry, to be born. His purpose is this, that He would save you. He would save me from my sin. And that we would know that in Jesus, the living God indeed, is with us, dwells among us, now dwells among us by His Spirit, that we might know Him, that we might love Him, and that our faith and wonder at His glory would fuel our worship, fuel our service, uh, compel us to go out this week uh, and to share with others the One whom we love. May it be so uh, for you, and may it be so for me. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful. Uh, for the truth of the Scripture, Lord, we know that uh, we need You. We need the work of Your Holy Spirit. We're so thankful for one another. We're thankful for brothers and sisters in the faith. We're thankful for Your church. We're thankful for Your grace and mercy, Your patience and Your goodness to us and the work of Your Holy Spirit. We thank You, Lord, that uh, You constantly call us back uh, to faith in You and Trust in you and trust in your word, even as Joseph was called to trust in that word, not to fear, but to go forward in obedience to you, trusting your word by faith. And as we're all called again today to stand in awe and wonder that this glorious God has sent his son, that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved from our sin, from its guilt, from its power, dominion over our life, Lord, that we might wonder the God who's with us, who comforts us, encourages us, challenges us, picks us up, loves us, cares for us, and leads us now on into a new week to serve you with fullness of heart, thankfulness for Jesus, Savior, Emmanuel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.